0: Welcome to the Virtual Cisco Happy Hour, Access Point Advisory Services. Today, we have Kyle Mullins and Scott back with us. Um, My name is Rick Laibe. As I said earlier, I am your host today. We are going to be covering a lot of one-on-one basic type of stuff that a lot of companies actually miss this week. And so, for example, being a Cybersecurity Awareness Month, the basics, the one-on-one gets missed a lot. I mean, a lot more than anyone cares to admit. And that's just the truth, right? I mean, we forget great Pim, great Pam, you know, great SSO. And we've got Kyle and Scott gonna kind of walk us down some of the some of the business drivers behind why we do what we do and the way we do that. Um, so and I will go ahead and try to encourage a little more conversation where we can. So okay, at this point, I'm gonna go ahead and ask Kyle to go ahead and introduce himself. Then I'm gonna ask Scott to introduce himself one at a time. Go ahead, Kyle, introduce yourself, tell the audience who you are what you do, where you've been, kind of your experience, your background, and let's go for it.
1: Well, hello. My name is Kyle Mullins. I'm a security engineer here at Access Point Technology. So I've been in IT for about eight years and I've been security for the last three of those.
2: And I am excited to talk about access management and passwords here and i jump into it. Awesome.
3: Hi. Hello, and I'm, I'm Scott Pack. I'm a security architect with AccessPoint. I've been working in information security for about 17 years now, um, through a, through a bunch of different roles, a bunch of different, um, areas, primarily higher ed and healthcare related. The, and for the majority of that time, focusing on, um, in, in more engineering tasks, security detections and how we can really integrate with, uh, with the business units themselves.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Thank you, gentlemen. So I'm going to start off with just a real simple question. So is identity management really the the best control plane we should be using in information security? So identity covers not just a human being, but also covers an endpoint, covers a process, covers an application, uh, covers a database object, potentially. So I'm going to go ahead and throw this question to Scott, first off, being our architect and being the awesome dude that he is. So my first question to you, Scott,
3: is, is identity our most important control plane? What's your opinion on that? I think it's definitely one of the one of the mo- more important. I, it's hard for me to really pick one, um, but identity is certainly significant. The at the end of the day, a lot of our risks come from how users interact with data, how they access data, how they manage data, and how they share data. And and while it's easy to the the just throw out the ball saying that, yes, we should really focus on the data and how, we, and how we handle that. It's really that user interaction that has a lot to do with it. So by focusing more on the identity side, then we can kind of jump ahead of the, of the line a little bit and really focus on making sure that the sense of information that we have can, can only be accessed or used in a way that's actually important to us.
0: Kyle, wow, what's your thoughts on that? Is identity really our most
1: important control plane? I think it's a good, I was going to say it's a good base, right, to build off of. So you start with using identity as like your ground level. And then you can start using all these different things that we're going to talk about throughout this episode and either authenticate against that or build off that, build the profiles, go passwordless. There's a lot of different options you have when you start using identity as kind of like your base level, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. And as
0: a Cisco, my concern is always around uh, auditing and audit functions and proof of immutable content. Let's put it that way. So for me, I I don't want anyone to ever be able to impersonate without notifying they've been impersonated for, for example, self process impersonation, that type of thing. So for audit purposes, for for me, the identity is the, the golden goose, if you will, to an auditor, who did what, when did they do it, why did they do it, or what process, etc. But having that identity control plane and being able to ensure that that particular process is what it states it is and what it's used for is intended. That for me is critical from the audit perspective. So, like uh, your IGA, your identity governance administration, you know that that would fall under your IGA. So, awesome, awesome, awesome. So I appreciate it. So. Scott, I'm gonna ask you, I'm gonna jump around a little bit today on purpose because our format's a little bit different. We are not live, we are not recording, which is awesome. So this gives me the ability to bounce around a little bit, be more of myself, because going down one line and staying monotone doesn't work well for me. Uh, I've never been a scripted kind of guy, I've never gonna be a scripted kind of uh so, so a couple of questions I want to ask you about. What about identity access management, Scott? What is your take on where does IAM fit in today's world considering your on-site, your cloud? services, uh, your SaaS services, your PaaS services. How do you fit Identity Access Management into the very basic core 101 of all these different dispersed systems and how do we guarantee our users or our processes are truly under our control? How
2: how,
3: how do you address that with IAM? That is a incredibly scarily broad and amazing question because, I mean, because you're exactly right. The, if, we, if we roll back the wheel 10, 15 years to when it was, it was all on-prem, everything lived within the data center that we managed, nobody could access anything unless they were in an office, then it was a lot easier because then everything was literally under our control. And, and that's not the case anymore. Um, I mean, you look at you look at cloud-native cloud or cloud-first companies where not only do they not have any data centers, they may only consume SaaS services. That um, that at best they might have a Google Compute or an Azure environment that they host some servers in, but otherwise, it's all somebody else's. The so it it definitely changes the tenor of how we approach the problem. But if anything, I think it makes it a lot more important that we get it right from the very beginning, because as you said, from notability standpoint. If we can't identify who accessed a record or who made a change, then if OCR comes knocking on our door, we have a big problem. <laughs> yes, we do. So in that in that manner, I think that's where um where tools like single sign-on become significantly more important. That even though um even though we may we may be using Salesforce for a C, um for a CRM, um yeah. Google for um for email. Then at least with a single sign-in provider um, kind of operating there in the middle, we can delegate some of those local apps more to our control. So that way we're still controlling, we're still controlling the identities, we're still controlling the access models, even in a very disparate environment. Um, but again, it changes the, it changes the way we have to approach the problem. Because now we're not talking about. Um, let's install a firewall rule so that nobody can access it. Now we're really saying we have to put all of our protections in the identity plane itself because we can't restrict access. On, we can't restrict access from the internet when our people are only on the internet. And Scott, you mentioned like
1: spending most of your time in a cloud environment, right? In these cloud-first companies. You know, right now, I'm spending most of my time in a cloud first company, and it's exactly the situation you described, right? And having that identity management is super important. We use PAM privilege access management, which includes things like just in time access and privilege identity management. And that helps us keep those audit records. First of all, you know, I know that Rick's, you know, he's always talking about the system stuff, like what's the auditing that's happening? And then on my side, I'm thinking about the engineering, like what is going to be. Safest and most effective for the company. So it's like we have all these people who need access to all these SaaS tools, a ton of almost all of them, like you mentioned. And it's like, okay, you can have your base level access, and then we're going to use things like PIM to give access to people only when they need it to access it. It logs all that, so then Rick has that that log of everything that's happening, right? And that's all. It's just so important, and it's a great way to set it up right the first time, like you mentioned. So.
0: I would even actually go one step further—not just just in time uh, access, but also just enough access. So I would make sure that we limit that down to. So Scott Pack is my architect. Why is Scott Pack looking at a medical record? Right, for example, he may have the every need to do so, and that would be completely legal and legitimate. But does he really need access to that medical record at this point in time, based on what he's doing today? You know, or based in this minute, right? So I, I would actually restrict access back a little bit further. it also helps for auditing. It also helps with the auditors come knocking on my door. We can put them in a nice little tight box and keep them in that box. We don't want the auditors going all over the place, right? We want them to only audit what they're intended to audit. And we make sure that we've got all the information they've got so that they can make an honest assessment and be able to prove that we've gone and done our thing to ensure that our identity access management, that our identity governance administration has done its job, in fact, and contained users in that box. And by the way, here, Mr. Auditor here's your box it makes it easier on us long run because when we keep them in a box it keeps you from looking at other things as well right and that's just the reality of it so
2: that's that, awesome. well i
0: wanted to
1: mention going back to setting up right way and what you just said doing RBACs and making sure that like when you install a tool when you implement a tool list out the roles you want for your yep. organization then you build those in to Azure or Google, whatever you're using for your access management, and then there you go. Your just-in-time access, the only access that you need. It's the same thing now. When you assign, when somebody checks out a role, it is only what they need. And again, doing it right the first time. You know, we've come across you know clients that I've worked with. It's like, oh, we set up this tool and there's only two roles: user and admin. Great. Well, now the users have too much access and the admins have too much <laughs> access, right? And you know, that's part of our job, right, Just to go through now and determine, okay, hey, we need these eight roles. But set it up right the first time, or you know, have, yeah, get that taken care of because that is super important.
3: So, what and I feel like something that often gets missed in those conversations is then the the governance process around what we do with those roles and what we do with that just in time access. Because, um, to, to use Rick's um, Rick's example of me, an architect accessing a medical record, I mean, yes, there may be a very legitimate business um, need for me to do that. However, how do we prove it? And how do we, how do we have the right governance in place so that when I request that just in time access, um, how does it get granted to me in a way that actually complies with corporate policy? That do we have some automation set up so that there is a case that I am in a special group where I may need access so then I can request it and automatically happens? Or does that kick off some kind of a approval process to, um, to the data owner to some other kind of functional group that actually has the authority to say that we asked God to do this so it's fine. The, but, it's, but no matter how detailed we get with those with those roles, with, with, um, with that, granular, or that granular access, without that governance process in the back end to make sure that we're following the rules correctly in a repeatable um, and defined manner, then that also
2: um, doesn't meet our audit requirements either. All right, that goes
0: back to your CIA triad, you know, your, your confidentiality, integrity, and availability. I and mean, that just goes back to your basics. So uh, there's something you touched on, Scott, that I want to go a little bit deeper on. So for example, you were talking about MFA and SSO. So when you start talking about SSO, a single sign-on, MFA to me is a failed... It, it's better than nothing, but it's a, it's, a failed, it's a failed reliability at this point, right? So because I can get around MFA now at this point, there are too many ways to steal authenticated cookies, and I no longer need your user ID, I don't need your... MFA, you know, permission because I'm already—I don't have to, you know, dual authenticate. I'm already in because I stole a cookie. So, for one of the things that I prefer, I like to talk about, and, and I'm going to let you talk to this to Scott a little bit. Is that like the multi-factor, truly multi-factor. Too many companies today use dual factor. I'm not talking about the actual product Duo. I'm saying two-factor authentication. Well, we really should be three-factor authentication, it should be username password, something you are, fingerprint, face print, something that you have, your phone, and then be able to keep that under a uh, mobile administrator or a mobile application management system or an MDM system so that you can take that cookie, that authenticated cookie, and you can ensure that that stays in an encrypted container or in an encrypted process so that it makes it more difficult for that cookie to be stolen, for example. So what are your thoughts on how do you secure MFA or what are your thoughts on MFA, Scott? based on your SSO requirement, how do you address MFA? How do you like to set up MFA? What's your recommendations around
3: setting up MFA with SSO? It's, it's definitely a very hard conversation to have because there's, because there can be so much nuance to it. The, but I as I look at it, um, I look at it almost like layers of, par, of a parfait that, yes, username and password is one it's better than nothing but it's but it's weak it's something then we can um, tack on traditional MFA on that so I'm so here I'm thinking like the the old RSA tokens where you just enter in a button what or you enter in a code that's rotating through whether that's a, a physical token or an application on your phone um, then there's also the like the the push notification um, where I try and log in and I just get it I just got a pop-up on my phone saying I tried to log in. Is that okay? I mean, we're kind of layering all these on top of each other, and it's none of them. None of them are guaranteed protection, and that that's where it gets that's where it gets complicated and and hard. Um, but then, but yeah, then you mentioned um, protected devices. So yeah, then now authorizing the devices as well, so that I put in my username and password, I type in a a rotating key for my um, for my device, but then but then the application checks is my computer or my or the phone that I'm logging in from an acceptable device. I um, mean, of course, that's better protection, but then it all adds additional complexities and responsibilities on the organization itself because now we have to manage those devices, which in some cases we may not be allowed to. Um, the but I think really the next best step from there is looking more at. Um, At what some place, what some areas call conditional access, um, or or entity and user behavior analytics. Um, There we go. (laughs) to to jump, to jump, just straight to the end of that that conversation chain, where um, then the then the approve or deny of my authentication is more based on my historic behavior. Um, So, for instance, I'm um, I live in Ohio. I'm typically logging into everything from central Ohio. if if the system detects that I'm now logging in from um, from London, well, that's weird. That's unusual. I'm not often in England, so that should not be an expected thing. Um, there's one particular rule that I just love. If I get down into the into the technical weeds a little bit, that's called impossible to travel, where if there's two login attempts from different parts of the world where I can't reasonably get from one location to the other. Um, so Ohio, and then 15 minutes later, Washington, DC. It's unlikely. Um so, so I think I think that's that's the next best step we need to do. That yes, we should have um some kind of multifactor, whether that's an app or a token or something, but then also layering on those um more dynamic um checks. Cause cause then because then that also helps reduce the um the impact on employees from their day to day work. Because also, if we make things too complicated for an impl- for a employee to use, they're going to figure out a way to bypass it. Right. And, and not only does that mean that our protections are not going to work, it also means they're going to be unhappy with us for doing it, which makes it harder for us to help in other ways in the future.
0: Yeah, it makes it harder to secure everything in the long run, because if it makes it so difficult, you can't do your job. Like you said, Scott, you know, our end users go around and create, start creating shadow IT and these types of things. Now you've got environments you don't even know you have to secure in some cases, and that makes it very difficult. So, awesome, awesome. I appreciate your thought on that. Kyle, what's your what's your thought on Pam, and tying that into zero trust? I've got to throw the zero trust in there because everybody's talking zero trust. Uh, we all have our own definition of zero trust. I know that there is an actual definition of zero trust out there, but, you know, that's like saying I'm a... SP-853R5 compliant. You know, nobody really is. There's always holes. It has to be 100% security equals 0% functionality. So I'm going to go back to Kyle. Kyle, how do you tie that identity access management into zero trust in this environment where we've got dispersed uh, applications, locations, individuals? How do you do that? What are your thoughts on that, Kyle?
1: So First of all, zero trust, like you said, everyone's got a different definition. Now, I think truly Security is a balancing act between convenience and security, right? And I think anyone, certainly at your level, knows that because that's when you start getting the calls about things that are inconveniencing people. (laughs) Now, Scott said a lot of great stuff. And one thing I wanted to continue on that kind of ties into this is UEBA, user and entity behavior analytics. I love UEBA. And I think it is one of the greatest things that an organization can put like in their in their environment to protect them and to keep like you said, when you have people dispersed everywhere, and you have maybe a zero trust set up in your environment where you're not allowing people to do certain things, UEBA can be an incredible tool. And the way it does that is, you know, it's building those, it's building like profiles for people, right? So if you have so-and-so that's logging in from their house on, you know, VPN or whatever, every single day, and then they're suddenly across the world, it's gonna stop that. And then if you have Mark from accounting accessing files, it's gonna stop that. Now, what what this means is, like, I, I have a better example, I think, from the real world. You know, when I, I was at a previous company and we had people logging in from home during COVID, right? And we had to give them the access they needed because suddenly everyone's at home. So this starts to eat away at like what we had built as an, and we were an all in-person office, and you have like this trust set up in your in your office environment, but now everyone's at home. So having UEBA already there started helping us build those profiles. Somebody, we had a high up exec that logged in from the Ukraine. Well, we have an office in Ukraine, so that's a wild thing. But because of the actual profile building, what they were starting to access is what actually triggered the alert. And it was a malicious,
2: you know, someone trying to get in. And I think that is just such a wonderful way to, you know, on top of the other things we've talked about,
1: add that like third layer of protection. You know, when, you have, when you're logging in with SSO and you then have to put in your MFA token and everything looks good, but then maybe it's you're accessing weird files or maybe it's the wrong time of day or it's the wrong location, whatever. That is like that really great layer of security that can cover everything else. Like you, you cover everything else with that. And I just think, you know, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on it specifically. I've been looking forward to talking about that because I just, I absolutely love it. So in my opinion, in my experience, I've I've done this for
0: 35 years, which means I'm qualified to say I've done this for 35 years and that's it. I know what the qualifications (laughs) in that respect. (laughs) So for me, UEBA actually is one of the first triggers in a long line of events that, when something happens, should trigger off your threat hunting capabilities, your threat intelligence capabilities immediately. So when a user, like the Scott's example, logs in LA and New York in 20 minutes, difference time frame, and that should automatically... Now we got a threat. Now, is, is the end user using some sort of VPN potentially? Okay, should they be using that VPN? Or do we have two, two different you new know, events going on, etc.? Do we have somebody that made the mistake of hard coding their user ID and password into an application and it happens to sit in the other location that occurs, right? So for me, the UEBA actually should feed into threat intelligence, threat hunting automatically in every organization. It's just kind of where I I'm real hardcore
3: about that. So Scott, what's your thoughts? I think you're exactly right. Because I know one, because we've we've kind of been dancing around the topic so far of just <clears throat> users authenticating and validating that that is the correct user to be authenticating, and a lot of different ways to handle that. But one of the other pieces, and and Kyle started to reference this a little bit, is that good UEBA will also allow us to detect <coughs> unusual behavior and activity for a
2: specific person, even if they're authorized to do it. Or process. Excuse me. The and that
3: really comes in key from not only the threat hunting aspect, but then using that to tie as part of a overall insider threat program. Yep. So if I'm going to use a, um, I'm actually going to use a, spe- a specific example from my, my employment history. So I, um, so I was working for a very large multinational company, and we received a UEBA alert that somebody had accessed an unusually large number of files. And, and this was somebody with access engineering documents, um, very, very important, um, private information. And, and then that, that triggered our, um, our investigation process, which turned out to be a case of an attempt at corporate espionage, somebody trying to steal information before they left Ooh. to go to a competitor. Um, and at the time we had a very nascent, um, insider threat program. Um, So so not dedicated people trying to conduct and and look for this, but it was was definitely the case of without that kind of unusual activity for a specific person, we never would have
2: identified it. And who knows what would have happened. So so by
3: by having those individual person-based activity records so that we can develop a norm for Rick, then it lets us, yes, detect if somebody is trying to impersonate Rick, but also if Rick himself becomes a threat. And, and I know that that's something that we tend not to like to talk about. because oh, it's true,
2: but inside yeah. a threat is the
0: biggest threat out there, period. I don't care who you are, what company you're with, inside a threat is the biggest threat in the world
3: to any organization, plain yeah. and simple. And, it, and from an interpersonal standpoint, it's hard to talk about because it can feel very um, accusatory. But it happens, and we need to be ready for it. And UBA is probably the, in my opinion, the ideal and single best way to to detect or
2: identify those types of situations. Kyle, do you agree with that? Absolutely. And I love the way Scott put it: is you know, it's not just if it's if
1: that person becomes the threat, and it's also if that account becomes if like the account gets taken over, even. If all the other stuff we've talked about today, someone gets through all that, you then still have an account that's compromised and someone's accessing things that they shown it, because they don't know how that person normally works. We have a profile built on that person for however long they worked there. Now, even if they get through everything else, you still have a tool to tell you, hey, this person's doing something suspicious. This something. This person's doing anomalous activity. Right. So it just makes sense to have something like in 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 your environment, in addition to everything else to make sure your accounts are safeguarded. Let's, let's talk about some
0: basic one-on-one stuff that I find uh, a lot of companies miss. And, and I'll, I'll, I'm gonna build up to this and I've got a statement at the end here that I want, I want our, our folks to walk away thinking about, right? So passwords, nobody wants to talk about passwords. Everybody hates passwords, right? And they hate the fact that Rick walks in and goes, well, you can't use a four letter password anymore. Now you got to use an eight letter, 12 letter, 16 letter. You know, or a digit password. So, what are your thoughts? I'm going to ask you each this up because you're each on different clients, you each have got different experiences. And I'm going to reserve my thought for the end. But, what is your thought on where the industry is coming back around to where else some folks are not being required to change passwords? They're now relying more heavily on MFA for password authentication for user authentication. What are your thoughts on not forcing in users to have a complex password Kyle? What are your thoughts on users having simple, you know, not being have not maybe being forced to change their passwords from time to time? What are your thoughts on that, Kyle?
1: So I haven't ran into both those things together that you mentioned, having not complex and not having to change, but I do really enjoy the complex password that you don't have to change, right? At two previous organizations I've worked, it's been 24 characters that you change yearly and 24 characters that you never have to change. And the reason that we moved to this and both as organizations, we went from just your standard, you know, maybe 12, 16 characters that you change every 90 days or whatever to this like kind of new way of doing it. And the reason we did that was because we have a lot of these other safeguards in place, right? We were either using, they have, they have to use MFA on their phone. Right. But in both those locations, we had behavior analytics, user behavior analytics set up. So we could, we had that safeguard. So we layered security so that we could make it more secure for the environment and more convenient for the user. And we felt that that was the best of both worlds. It was so nice. And users loved it because I used to travel a lot to the different manufacturing facilities and do training with people. And they would always tell me, it's like, oh my God, I'm so glad I don't have to change my passwords anymore. Or only I only have to change them once a year. And you know what that did? I stopped finding passwords sticky noted on computers because I was always the guy that would come back and be like, I found a book. I have a picture on my phone. I found a password book. All the people in the plant in that one area, they had written all their passwords down on this one book that the supervisor kept on her desk. That is the kind of stuff you get when you start, you don't hit that bounce when you start requiring 16-character passwords that change every 90 days, it, you're, making your, you're making everything less secure. You just can't see it. You know Your policy and your paper is not everything. It's about how users actually use it. So layering the security as you know, these security tools that we've all been talking about and then making it more convenient for them, making it more secure for us, it's awesome. So. so this requires
0: then going back and actually updating all of your corporate policies as well because when you change your passwords like this, or your, your access management of any flavor, you've got to be able to hit, match that back to a policy. So one of the things that I want to make sure that we're, our users don't walk away from, our audiences walk away from, say, oh, let's go change our password policy you know, in Active Directory, or Azure AD, or AWS to strong, you know, strong password, MFA, once every you know, EU, EBA, and then make the change every once a year. I want to make sure that we go back and say, make sure you check with your compliance team, To ensure that your corporate policies are up to date because otherwise, you could potentially now run into an issue where you are willfully neglectful of your password policies. Your password policy says every 90 days, if you get breached at 181 days or something occurs 181 days inside a threat or external threat, doesn't matter. You're now no longer compliant with your own policies, which now there's a legal liability. And there goes that V-CISO thing going on, you know, that CISO thing going off again, you know, that that liability thing. So I just wanted to inject that here real quick before Scott jumps in and
1: kind of gets Scott's thoughts on the same thing. My that's why you're here, Ray. <laughs> you're, you're that person for us, you know. I try to keep us from getting sued. <laughs> I don't want to be a CISO. And that's why we have you. We have the engineers and the system This is perfect. <laughs> awesome.
2: Awesome. So, Scott, what's, what are your thoughts on moving away from passwords, moving to passwordless? i so I have a very
3: complicated history with passwords. I mean, and much like you i've been I've been doing this long enough where I got to live through that um, through that transition, and while I hold no malice to the individuals that originally um, put forth the the standard of a characters, uppercase, lowercase, special um, characters, numbers, changing every. Every 60, 30, 90 days. Um, I don't hold any malice to them because I know they were doing the, they were making the best recommendation they could at the time with the information that we had. But, but yes, hi- history and technology it has told us that that was in retrospect a bad idea. And, and we ended up in a situation where we're, exp- where we trained people to make passwords that were difficult for humans to remember and easy for computers to guess. And I and for me personally, I was very, I was thrilled when the when the new NIST guidance came out. What was it, 2018? I think. Um, yeah, oh 1.1, well, um to then update update 863B, um, I believe, to say, um, just make it super long, and only change it or don't don't require people to change it arbitrarily on a time basis. Now there is a there's a very Specific distinction and I think is important and often gets missed is that unless there's no reason to suspect it needs to be changed. So that no, every six months I should not change my password. But if I believe it has been compromised, I should be forced to change it. So do you okay, do you feel the
0: same thing where you have some applications today? I mean, this is 2023, right? We're almost to 2024. And how many times you run into applications that can't use SSO?
3: Too many.
2: That can't use MFA, right? In a large corporate environment, and it's unfortunate, but it still happens. so what does
0: that modify your approach on passwords and password changing uh, NIST where you have applications where that you cannot thats automatically you know use SSO or MFA. How does that change your your, your thought pattern or does it change your thought pattern, Scott?
3: It can. Um, to me, it depends on the on on a business impact assessment or risk assessment of that specific application. <laughs> and, and what, if those credentials get compromised, if, or not even credentials, but if inappropriate access is gained to that application or service, what'll happen? If, if it doesn't matter. Oh, you're sending my language, yeah. risk, I love it. <laughs> if, if it doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter. And we just do what makes sense and what won't anger the users too much. But oh, if I disagree
0: with that. I don't care about angering the user. I do, but I don't care about angering the user. My concern is the data, right, and, and the protection of that data, right? So angering the user on occasion, unfortunately, we're all humans, right? Technology is easy. Humans are the hard part, right? So I, I disagree a little bit there to not worry about the end users so much. Uh, I try to work with them, not against them. So I, I, think, I, I think if you're talking about not against them, I agree
3: with you. Yeah, and really that's what I'm coming at, That the that we don't want to put undue burden on the end users of the service. Because again, oh, if they're if we make it too burdensome, they'll find a way to bypass it. Because, yep. because somebody in accounting's job is to manage books and run accounting. It's not to implement security. And they should they should be able to do their job. And yep. um and I, and we should be able to support that but again that comes back to the risk profile of the of the specific service or application that we're talking about and specifically the data that it has access to or that it contains because i'm um
2: i'm a l- i'm a little less concerned with
3: a um with a coffee club web app that that people can use to um to sign to sign up to agree to join the coffee club I'm significantly more concerned about the HR application.
2: The, but in those cases where
3: it is a, where there is a high risk to the business um, from an application, or there's a high risk, or there there's high, high risk or high confidence in the data, then yes, we need we may need to be a little more draconian, um, to the point of saying if it doesn't support SSO, maybe we don't approve purchasing it. Agreed, Or or we try and find some other way to implement controls in it. Um, I know Um, if I well, if I put in if I put on my engineering hat for a bit, um in the past I've worked with multi-factor tools that kind of sit in the middle, that applications that don't support multi-factor or authentications or authentication systems that don't support multi-factor, that there are tools that exist that kind of sit in the middle that will do the multi-factor themselves and that they'll broker conversations and they'll kind of inject a multi-factor in a way. Um, is it ideal? No. Is it better than nothing? I think so. Um,
2: but and Scott, you know, I wanted to mention on that same thing that's, you know, in a company, and if
1: a company has policies that we're talking about that are these password policies that some applications can meet, if you do a merger and acquisition or if you acquire a company and suddenly their, their system that they're using is 30 years old and you can't put a password in that's over eight characters, I've seen this, mm-hmm. then you have to do yeah, exactly that, this. right? <laughs> <laughs> it's, you know, some of these these programs that were coded 30, 20 years ago, they just it, they were never set up in that way. You know, I, I've seen a few programs that you just cannot put a password longer than 8% and they don't do MFA, so you have to figure it out in a different way because the company can't just switch off of it overnight, right? But I, I definitely do I mean, the policy to stop it, make make us a requirement for new purchases 100%. <laughs> So yeah,
0: that, that goes back to the compensating controls that Scott started going down and talking about. So
2: put that middleware piece in there; they can authenticate the user or the process. Yeah, because there's there's typically,
3: I mean, no matter how, no matter how old or no matter how um, how complicated the system is, there's always going to be a way to wrap a nice little safety blanket around it somehow. And sometimes it's complicated to do so. Sometimes it's easy. But but again, once, once we have that, that risk profile of the data or the application in hand, then we can actually start having those conversations. Um, but but, that, but it's, it's, I find it just so hard to speak
2: on questions like that in the general case, because, mm-hmm.
3: because there is no general guidance for what do you do if in a situation right. like this. Oh, it's very, it's, it's very specific to the, to the application or service or situation that we're in. But that goes back to, you know, back to where you started, Scott,
0: you know, it was started out, you know, build it right from the beginning. So even if you can't like to, to address Kyle's, Kyle's note, you know, that you purchased some company and they've got a problem, right? You, you bought a problem, right? That goes back to least privilege. That goes back to your business impact analysis. Understand what your disaster, you know, your disaster risk analysis looks like. So if something goes wrong, you know, in your BIA, you've identified something. How does your disaster risk you know, go back to that and get your identity tied in so that you can get to things? And putting that middleware piece in and laying the, adding that extra layer in there, I think that all goes back to, your, your, again, Scott, your, your original was build it right to begin with. And Kyle, if you buy it, that hurts because bolting on security never works well. I mean, it sometimes can work funky and get you through things, but it never works great just my, my experience. Um, okay. What about continuous authentication, Kyle? What are your thoughts on continuous authentication? So I'm logged in, and I'm just always continuously authenticating everything that I do every time I go somewhere. What do you think about continuous authentication moving forward in today's environment with cloud, on-site, dispersed
1: systems that you don't own? So I really enjoy it. I think, again, it goes back to... That convenience for the user while still being secure. If I have a app or something, and I think most normal users will see this in their day to day lives with a lot of applications, where you open up an app on your phone, it you uses Face ID or your fingerprint reader or whatever, based on you know some kind of biometric, something you are, right? And then you logged in, and then maybe in thirty days you have to put your password in. You are like, oh, I wonder why, but really, to the user, it's pretty convenient. To us on the security side, we have multiple, you know, we have multi-factor authentication now. we have the user actually logging in, and then they're using passkeys, essentially, as a biometric to get into the application. And I think doing that on the business side is, it, dep- it depends on, you know, how important that application is with the data that's held in it. And again, that w- you would determine that when you're actually building out the policy for access of that application and the data that you're going to have access to. But for some things,
2: that's a perfect use case just to make it convenient and secure. What are your thoughts on how effective our end user training has been? So, one of the things we always have to worry about from a uh, one of the things we always have to worry
0: about from a an auditor's perspective and from a compliance perspective is end user training, right? So, I've trained my developers at OWASP. I've trained our end users on medical confidentiality or healthcare confidentiality or uh, We've trained our end users on, you know, password, whatever. Going back to the end user, that human firewall, Kyle, how effective have we, and I'm saying we because I'm a Cisco. how effective have we been as an organization in actually developing human firewalls? How effective have we been? What, what have you seen that we can do differently that our, our audience has, you know, can learn something from or they can maybe go back, oh, I'm doing that. I need to make these two changes what are your thoughts on the human firewall how well we've done and what can we do differently
1: so when i first started back in it i was one of those people that was like you know this is this is dumb right this is not worth the time like people aren't going to listen to these stupid trainings and they don't they don't care about this but as i've grown my career and i started to see it i it, i'm shocked but it actually works like incredibly effectively and i've worked in you know medical environments at a hospital and worked at a manufacturing facility. And in both cases, you know, one where you have IP and, you know, you have patent information that you don't want to get, you know, get compromised yes. and you have health information, which we all know about that in both scenarios, people were actually like, you know, no, you cannot have access to this or we need to close this or, you know, they actually take this stuff seriously. And I think, you know, in my in my wife, she works in finance. She was doing trainings the other day. and it was one of those sitcom style trainings, right? that you see that's kind of popular now. I think they're so I'm like, oh, that is dumb. She was like, I actually like this more. This is actually like fun to watch. I'm gonna see what's happening. I'm like, oh my God, it's actually working. like these these methods of training people by using, you know a sitcom style security awareness training or having it as part of the culture of the environment where you are, you know, everyone just kind of knows you're not cool if you're not doing it. Like you, you want to be doing it. It is super effective. And I'm, you know, I'm really glad to see that, you know, eight years later. So it's, 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 it's good. So I think, you know, and you, when you say we, I'm thinking security people in general, right? And the people who are putting together these trainings, the people who are actually running security awareness programs. So, and, that, and that's where I see it going is using those kind of style trainings. And it seems to be doing great. So, Let me preface, the reason I asked that question about the human
0: firewalls, and Scott, think about this, I'm giving you a heads up. So in my opinion, I've been doing this for 35 years I've been in IT. I've been in security specifically 20 plus years, blah, 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 blah. My certifications don't matter, but CISSP, all that good fun stuff. But it's my
2: core belief that we as information security professionals have failed our younger generation? And I say that
0: because my children don't understand. And now my children are 23 to 37 years old. So to kind of give people an idea of my age frame, my children think that all of their data is breached. They have doesn't matter. So I asked them about becoming a human firewall. When I started talking to them about these things, some of them you see the light come on. Sometimes you don't see the light come on. And so from, from my perspective of we've already failed in some cases because people don't think their data is important. They think they've already been breached. My question around the human firewall is, how effective are we and why are, or why are we not being effective in as security professionals in building out that human firewall? Because that human firewall is going to catch all the things that technology doesn't catch, right? It's going to catch that weird phishing or that weird smishing. It's going to catch all that. Why on earth is Rick asking me this question? This does not make any sense. How many times have we all seen... You know, somebody get a text message from the CEO. Hey, I'm in a business or an email. I'm in a meeting. Don't bother me, but go buy these Android or these Google Play cards. I need these right now. Or, you know, uh, send this money to your to ACH this cash over here because I'm the CEO and I'm too busy to talk to you. We've seen that, right? So, what what could we have done differently, or what should we do differently, or are or are we being effective in building human firewalls? And we just have to
1: continuously develop that. I I I want to. I think you're talking about, in my opinion, those are two different things. Like you have, you you have, when you're, when your kids say, Oh, our data is already everywhere. That is like personal data privacy, right? Which I agree with them. Everyone's got everything. You, yeah, you can do your, you can do your best to try to hold your data. Like don't do certain things. Don't sign up for certain applications, whatever. But to just exist in like normal life, a lot of time and to participate in like what is happening, like, that information is going to get out there. That, to me, is separate than business data and what's happening in your work, like what's happening at the hospital, what's happening in your company's environment. Like those two are are separate to me. So you would you can have a discipline in one, while you can just be like, ah, oh, more well, personal data is out
2: there. So it is what it is. So in that is in my opinion. You know, those are two separate, and people think differently about them. Yeah, that leads into where I was kinda of, kinda of, I
0: was gonna kinda of go to, right? So I try to use that human firewall and train them to try to avoid all these things, try to catch it, try to ask the questions. I will drop anything to answer a question before somebody clicks on a link or sends an email, right? So I always try to operate on the thought pattern that we're breached, right? We're already breached. There's something in here, something happening. So if I can teach my end users how to be that human firewall? How to catch that? How to see something, say something? And that's kind of where I was going with that. And that's the approach I like to take. You know, guys, I believe we already breached. Now it's up to my end users to try and help find that. If that if that makes any sense. Scott, what are your thoughts on that? Do, do you am I off base? Am I on the
3: planet Mars? What do you think on that? No, I think that makes perfect sense, especially when you look at some of the some of the analysis that comes out. Um, I'm thinking like the Verizon um, data breach report, for instance. When they because they they run numbers, and um, I think I believe had also puts out similar reports. But but they run numbers that look at how many, like what is the average detection time from the breach occurring to we actually pick it up, and what's and and then from there, like what's the average size and what's the average amount um, or the average dollar value per record. I mean th- so that information is interesting but less useful. But when we look at the the dwell time of compromise to detection, I mean. It's twenty twenty three and we're still um I believe we're still in the anywhere from six to nine month range. So the So do I, by the way. I agree with you, six to nine months. That's typical. So the assumed breach, I think it's not only a good idea, it's a provable fact that <clears throat> that for any given organization,
2: is it right for us to say you are breached, therefore you need to act like it.
3: No, I don't think that's reasonable. But, but to but to walk into it with the assumption that, not I need to figure out how to prevent this, but I need to know when this happens. Right. But I that's think that's go back to what were the crown jewels,
0: etc., and start training people from there from that point out. Right. Yes. So to your to your original, you know, your original uh, comment of you don't care if somebody signs up for a coffee club app, right? Guess what? That's public information already. Anyhow, nobody cares, right? But now, when you started talking about the crown jewels and our intellectual property, now that human firewall plays more plays a bigger role
3: in that, in my, in my opinion. Yeah, one hundred percent. And and if I if I trickle back to the training conversation that we were just having, I think in, I think at this point, from a corporate standpoint, we are doing a significantly better job as an industry in training that that it's not like fifteen years ago when when it was. Effectively, a a PowerPoint presentation of this is what this is what you should do. But exactly, yeah. <laughs> but I'm sorry, for the prospects. Oh
0: my god, I remember those. You're, you're giving you making the hair on the back of my neck stand up. <laughs> the,
3: but the but we started, but it went from engineers and analysts developing the training to people with a training or a or a production background for um, conducting like the training. behind yeah. it, yeah, exactly, and. And really explaining to people, not just this is what you should do, but this is why it's important because we want people to not have the annual reminder of don't click on links. But the under, but well, if they understand why clicking on a bad link is bad, then they're more likely to remember and actually do it when it happens. And, and I believe the tra- most of the training systems and training classes that we have these days are doing a much better job with that. The. But it, but it's also very important to make sure that it's a kind of a continuous model that not just every 12 months you click the button and you're done, but recurring reminders and and make it fun. I mean, I because I've I've worked with one with one client that I thought did a fantastic job with their training and they had real engagement people in um, staff members. They had a specific um, specific um channel in their in their communications tool where staff members would post screenshots of phishing emails and they would joke about them and it became they treated it almost like a um almost like bragging rights to say look at what i caught and i and i thought they i I thought that community involvement was fantastic um and it really trained them to think about things the but then also to your point of your kids and their personal personal privacy um, I do believe that's that's a place where we haven't done a very good job, that we focus all of our efforts on the corporate side and not so much on the personal side. So that, yes, it's true. I mean, in the United States, um, property records are all are all public. Meaning, if you own property, your information is public record. Most drivers' and licenses are public record too. Vote and um, voting registration. So, yep. so even, I mean, and that's just the legitimately public record. That's not. Um, that doesn't take into account say, the OPM breach all those years ago, where basically anybody that has ever worked with the government had not only their personal information but their biometric exactly <laughs> but their biometric information also compromised the and so I think I think the general idea of of the younger generation, um, those kids like like Kyle, assuming that my information is breached, it's fair um. The I think what we've not done is a good enough job of then trying to trying to teach them trying to ha, trying to explain why it's important to be careful anyway, and that's and that's a, and speaking as a father, um, I I even struggle with my own um, with my own child how to explain that in a way that that doesn't feel burdensome that doesn't feel um, authoritarian.
2: Awesome, awesome. Well, gentlemen, we are out of time.
0: I appreciate your thoughts today. So, Kyle, I'm going to ask you and Scott both the same question. So, if you, what would you like to see our audience walk away with two or three items from this conversation? What two or three highlights would you want them to walk away with and learn something from that could better improve their
1: organizations? Kyle, I'll start with you. So, I think the most important thing about this conversation was knowing, based on all the things we talked about, what is your organization missing, right? And the things that you could take away would be what of the things we talked about would make the most sense to implement in your organization? What is actually feasible? What's possible to do? Do you need better end-user training? Do you need a whole UEBA suite? Do you need to start implementing just-in-time access, right? Like These are all things that you might be doing one, two, all of them, great. You're doing a great
2: job. But you need to think about you know, your layers of security and what you can add in to really fully round out your, your protection for your environment and your users. Okay.
0: Scott, same question to you. What two, or threes, what two or three things would you like to see our audience walk away from today after this
3: conversation? That, that's a hard follow-up because, it, because honestly, I feel very much the same way that every organization is different. Every yes. organization's needs are different and there is no want, there is no single size fits all for everybody. It's it's all about being aware of kind of what the options are and knowing your own business well enough to know what what needs to happen. But I but and and we didn't talk about this a lot, but I think one of the most one of the most crucial things somebody could take away is the importance of the business impact assessments and risk assessments yep. to understand what your business needs are, what your business gaps are. And then from there, figure out the, the ideal ways to address that, whether it's implementing a full zero-trust architecture or just simple um, better behavior monitoring. Yeah. And, and that's where I was actually going to go with that was back to
0: behavior monitoring and going back and using that to build your threat models, build your user profiles, and then go back and compare those. I actually go back one more time to the BIA because now what's going to happen? How could it happen? and try to tie those back together and try to learn what what can we learn from this, right? So you take your end users back to your business impact analysis and what could potentially go wrong? How could it go wrong? And then how can you learn from this, right? And that's kind of where I go with that. So, gentlemen, I appreciate your time today. I really hope that Kyle, you and Scott will both come back and be participants again in our panel. I really enjoyed our time today with you guys and I appreciate it. Thank you very much and hope everyone has a wonderful day. Thank you. Thanks everybody.